Live from New York, I'm Richard Quest, sitting in for Julia Chatterley this morning. This is First Move, of course, and here's what you need to know. An unwanted record. Uh, the U.S. is closing in on 3 million coronavirus cases confirmed. Disappointing as civil rights leaders hit out at Mark Zuckerberg's response to their claims and requirements for hate speech on Facebook. And no limit. The U.S. Fed's vice chairs told me that the Federal Reserve can do more to help the U.S. economy. And they will. It is Wednesday, middle of the week. We need to make a move. Good day to you. Welcome to First Move. I'm Richard Quest, sitting in for Julia Chatterley today. We are continuing to monitor the number of coronavirus cases around the world, and they are starting to, to rise at an alarming rate in many places. Whether you call it a surge or a second or third wave, coronavirus is far from being done. For example, the United States, where now coronavirus is about to hit 3 million confirmed cases. Cases are also flaring up, excuse me again, in Tokyo and in Hong Kong. Australia is fighting a major outbreak in Melbourne, where Australia's second largest city is on lockdown, and they may limit the number of people entering the country. And all of this as the United States is beginning its formal withdrawal from the World Health Organization. The futures in the United States are managing to hold on for dear life, barely, po <coughs> pointing to a mostly flat open after Tuesday's across-the-board pullback. The Dow and the S&P fell more than 1%, and the Nasdaq retreated from record highs. Europe's lower. HSBC is a big loser in the UK. A Bloomberg report says the White House is considering undermining the Hong Kong dollar peg to the US currency, and that might limit HSBC's access to dollars. Seventh day of gains for Chinese stocks. The Hong Kong Hang Seng rose half a percent to almost four-month highs. Morgan Stanley says both markets still have room to run, although the Nikkei and the Seoul Kospi were lower. To the drivers and the latest battle on against COVID. The number of US cases has now hit just about three million. More and more states are announcing further lockdowns, restrictions, shuttering bars and restaurants. Meanwhile, Donald Trump said, and wait for this, Donald Trump says he believes the US is in a good place. One's not sure to which place he is referring. Here's CNN's Rosa Flores. A record-breaking day in the United States, seeing over 60,000 new coronavirus cases Tuesday, according to Johns Hopkins University, the highest since the start of the pandemic. There's nothing to stop this train. There's nothing to stop this steep acceleration uh, in the number of cases. This is a public health crisis. This is a public health disaster. Florida is one of the top five states reporting the most new infections on Tuesday. We have no doubt seen a major increase in cases. The median age of our new cases was in the 50s about a month and a half ago. Now that's dropped into the 30s. People who are healthy and under 40, you know, the death rate on this thing is, is very close to zero. Earlier, the nation's top infectious disease expert warned this. It's a false narrative 
to take comfort in, in a lower rate of death. There's so many other things that are very dangerous and bad about this virus. Don't get yourself into false complacency. Arizona is another hotspot. Hospitals there becoming increasingly overwhelmed and people also facing long lines for testing with delays in getting back results. We need medical professionals. We need testing kits. We need supplies immediately. Our hospitals are already in dire straits and they tell us that as in the next two weeks, it is going to get to a unbearable level of crisis. It's a similar story in California, with coronavirus hospitalizations at an all-time high and a slow turnaround time from diagnostic labs. Throughout Florida hospitals, 56 intensive care units have already hit capacity, and an additional 35 show a bed availability of 10% or less. Still, Governor Ron DeSantis will not reveal official state numbers on how many COVID-19 patients are within Florida hospitals. So all the data that goes into this is, is all available. from that data, Governor, it is not available. And in Texas, hospitals in Houston could soon also reach their limits. The next two weeks will be, will be important, will be critical. So it's, it's not just about providing beds, but the staffing that goes right along with it. Texas has reported over 10,000 new cases Tuesday, its highest single-day count so far. Governor Greg Abbott asking residents to follow the statewide mandatory mask requirement. The last thing that we want to do is to shut Texas back down. We will not have to shut it down if everyone will follow this very simple rule, and that is just get a mask like this. Wear it. Rosa Flores reporting there. Rising infection rates are now starting to call into question whatever economic recovery there had been. The Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta says economic activity is now leveling off. United Airlines says it's seeing bookings slowing down and falling even. John Deterius is here. John, Rosa Flores was talking about the situation in the United States. If we look at the rest of the world... Yeah, things are better, but there are many places that are showing concern. Uh, that's for sure, Richard. Uh, there's a slight pause in the equity markets today, but we've been living in these two different realities over the last three months. Uh, the financial world, where we've become overly dependent on central bank action. I thought your interview last night with the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve was very telling. He's saying we can expand our balance sheet and do whatever it takes that's the signal to one side of the reality. The other one is the real world on Main Street, for example. Uh, you take a look at a Brooks Brothers, a very well-known name internationally, of course, filing for bankruptcy. So as you suggested in your lead-in, the United States, Australia, Israel, developed markets under pressure. I have great concern about some of the big emerging markets around the world. Let's uh, bring up the pictures here of the, the three leaders who are under intense pressure right now. Bolsonaro of Brazil, Prime Minister Modi of India, Lopez Obrador of Mexico. If you add them up, Richard, it's about a quarter of the world population. India hasn't been in recession since 1979. They've swung from a plus 2% to a negative 4.5% on the projections by the International Monetary Fund for 2020. They're under pressure. The one standout, Richard, the one that reacted quickly, maybe not revealing the virus early, is China. The Shanghai index uh, surged again today to another five-year high. But they could grow in 2020 by one to two, maybe even three percent if they get that fourth quarter recovery. You know, just listening to you saying that, though, about China, it begs the question, 
were they that good at handling it? Do we know the true picture there? Why should everybody else be in such a dreadful position and China not? Well, I tell you, Richard, because uh, they did do a very severe lockdown. But I think the other thing that's bubbling out there that we should address today uh, is the intensifying nature of the U.S.-China tensions that we see today. Uh, and it's not about the hard goods that we've talked about in the past, but TikTok, right? Uh, Huawei, ZTE, the telecom equipment manufacturer. You heard Mike Pompeo's language. He says he's going to go quite aggressively here all the way through 2020 to take China to account. But the gold rally we're seeing today, for example, uh, is because of the report from Bloomberg talking of pressure by the United States on the peg of the Hong Kong currency to the U.S. dollar to punish China. That peg has been in place since 1983. So whether you're questioning the number of cases in China, how did they lock down, whether they were transparent, then you have the Trump administration looking for a political play here, let's be honest, in an election year going very aggressively against Beijing through Hong Kong is the report today. John Duterres, John, thank you. The UK government's announced its budget, or at least a supplementary budget. Anna Stewart is in London. The focus is what? The focus is without doubt jobs, jobs, jobs. And no surprise there, Richard. Nine million people in the UK have been on the government's furlough scheme. That is set to wrap up in October. And so looms mass unemployment. So this was a budget very targeted about creating, protecting and retaining jobs. And it involves a lot of tax cuts and a lot, Richard, a lot of spending. But Anna, the, the way this spending, this idea of a thousand dollars, a thousand pounds, I should say, to take on, to take somebody back on, on the back of a job retention scheme that was extremely expensive. Essentially, the British government has paid to keep people on the rolls and is paying to put those that left back on again. Yes, this was a really, this was a surprising measure, I have to say today. Uh, any company that has furloughed workers will receive £1,000 per employee they bring back if they retain them till January. Unclear how many businesses will feel that that is enough support to actually bring people back. And the government said there's no cap on this. If all 9 million furloughed workers were to be brought back into work and retain those jobs till January, it would cost them £9 billion. If only it were that simple, though, even though that is very expensive, that is what is needed to keep the economy ticking, to dig the UK out of this deepest recession it's ever really been and the deepest economic slump uh, by any count. I mean, we're talking multiple times over in terms of historic. Um, also, actually, Richard, before I go, some new schemes about uh, targeted towards young people. An under-25 scheme called the Kickstart Job Scheme. The government will pay the minimum wage salary for any new under-25-year-olds that are hired for six months. So that also goes to the spending. And then numerous other incentives uh, to kind of get certain industries, particularly leisure and tourism, going. Hannah, these are all very worthy schemes and with admirable aims but there are but they are essentially job creation schemes particularly the last one the kickstart it's a it's a way of getting people onto the off the off the uh, the government's roles and onto companies books but if, if the underlying economy isn't strong all that happens is that there aren't the necessary business to keep these people on after the schemes come to an end 
Well, and it's interesting that this government, the Conservative government, or the one before it, it was the one that actually cancelled the last very similar job scheme from a Labour government. So it's interesting that it is them now that is creating the scheme. How effective is it? Alongside creating these jobs for young people, they are creating ideally jobs in targeted sectors like green energy, like construction. So perhaps they are seeing that this is a way of remodelling the economy if some industries and some sectors will be under pressure for medium to long term for the next few years, perhaps a creation of jobs in sectors that might be less harmed by this recession. Perhaps that will help. But yes, lots of economists scratching their heads wondering just how effective this will be. But there's no doubt you have to do something. You can't just take everyone off the furlough scheme and expect uh, jobs to stay and to keep the economy going. You can't have mass unemployment. The government feels it's worth the cost. Good point. Anna Stewart in Downing Street. Thank you. Companies who are against, who are leading and boycotting uh, Facebook say that the social media giant, they are criticising the reaction of Mark Zuckerberg after their meeting yesterday. Well, I think the meeting was disappointing, to say the least. Facebook asked us for this meeting and we expected them to share details and timeframes to execute on those recommendations. Instead, we didn't get any details, we didn't get any timeframes. No commitments, no outcomes. Brian Fung's with me. Should we be surprised that Mark Zuckerberg was, was unable to come up with the necessary to satisfy the critics? Would he ever been able to? Well, Richard, it's uh, been very clear from Facebook uh, for months now that the company is going to proceed on a path and a timing of its own choice. Uh, the civil rights groups that met with Mark Zuckerberg yesterday brought a list of 10 demands, um, one of them being that they want Facebook to hire a C-suite level executive to handle civil rights issues. Another one is that they want uh, the company to address the exemption that it has for politicians under its rules. Uh, apparently, you know, Zuckerberg not really addressing any of those and uh, moving ahead with the release of a civil rights audit today uh, conducted by an independent authority on civil rights, Laura Murphy. And uh, in, on the heels of that report, Facebook is saying, look, uh, this report shows that we need to do better and we will do better, uh, but this is a process uh, and, and we are making progress on that. Um, that's not enough for a lot of these civil rights groups who have said the audit is simply just a list of recommendations and a critique of the company. It doesn't represent uh, binding commitments by the company either on its actions, and they want more. They want to hear actual concrete uh, promises from the company as far as what it's going to do to clear up its platform and fight hate speech. Uh, as you heard from Jonathan Greenblatt from the uh, Anti-Defamation League, uh, he didn't hear any commitments. And uh, uh, you know, what Facebook has consistently said is um, you know, they've made lots of investments, lots of uh, taken some steps in hiring. Uh, now at this point, their artificial intelligence systems are capable of clearing up 89% of hate speech on its platform before anyone sees it. Well, Greenblatt uh, responded in the meeting um, that 89% uh, is not something that any other company could get away with claiming. Uh, he said that Ford Motor Company, which is one of the companies that's signed on to this campaign, wouldn't be able to get away with saying 89% of car seatbelts uh, work in, in its cars and the other uh, you know, um, 10 or so percent uh, don't work. So 
clearly the civil rights groups here are very frustrated, very disappointed in the way that Zuckerberg and his top lieutenants have handled this issue. And some of them even have told me they won't uh, agree to meet with Zuckerberg again until they see some commitments. Brian Fung, who's in Washington. Now the stories and headlines making news around the world. Brazil's president, Bolsonaro, says he is feeling fine the day after he told the world that he had been tested positive for coronavirus. He says he's feeling fine, which is interesting from a man who's repeatedly dismissed the seriousness of the pandemic. CNN's Bill Weir is in Sao Paulo with more. To Australia now, we'll have that report from Bill Ware in just a moment. Uh, to Australia, when the city of Melbourne has, goes into full lockdown for six weeks as coronavirus cases surge. The country has also shut the border between its two most popular states, Victoria and New South Wales, in an effort to contain the virus. Now, we are able to rejoin Bill Weir, of course, who's talking about the Brazilian President Bolsonaro, who says he's feeling fine after he's been diagnosed with coronavirus. After months of sneering at a little flu and wading into crowds of unmasked fans, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro told his country today that he has COVID-19. But there was no sign of a president humbled. I'm feeling very well, he said, and gave much of the credit to two doses of hydroxychloroquine, the controversial anti-malarial drug first pushed by Donald Trump, then stockpiled by Bolsonaro, but unproven as a treatment for COVID-19. And he insisted that the millions of young people he's urging back to work can still feel invincible. Younger people, take care. But if you are affected by the virus, rest assured that for you, the possibility of something more serious is close to zero. When you were health minister, did you try to warn him? Try to get him out of those crowds for his own health? Uh, everybody did. Not, not only the health minister, all the other ministers. We, we all advised him. Dr. Luis Mandetta was Brazil's health minister until Bolsonaro fired him for trying to get the nation to stay distant or stay home. But instead of the virus converting the president to science, Mandetta worries it'll only amplify a pseudoscientific message of more malaria pills and less quarantines. He stands for it and makes a political stand for, um, well, I had the disease here, look at me, I'm okay, I'm a superhero. I took this medicine, I really did well, and, and you should do this also. His message could be a disaster. Meanwhile, the largest cemetery in Latin America is not large enough these days. And in his 25 years digging at Villa Formosa, and Denilson Costa has never seen fresh graves fill up so fast. There were four COVID families here this morning and were shocked, he says. Everyone is the same, 10 minutes max. No wake, no way to look in the coffin because it is the last greeting they will ever give to the loved one they lost. And there is no time for a ceremony. Bill Weir, CNN, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Now, when we continue on First Move, the US Fed's vice chair, there's more that we can do, there's more that we will do, he told me if it is needed. 
You'll hear from the vice chair in just a second, Richard Clarida. And Mexico's president flies economy to get to Washington. At least he's got the reason for his trip coming up in a moment. Warm welcome back to First Move. Julia's off for the day. It's 22 minutes past nine. We're just about, what, seven or so, eight minutes away from the opening on Wall Street. And the futures are pointing to a modestly higher open overall, trying to bounce back from yesterday's losses. The Nasdaq fell for the first time in six sessions on Tuesday, but it looks like it's going to reverse that, at least at the open. If you look at the Russell 3000, the Russell 2000 actually, the economically sensitive small cap stocks took the biggest hit in the previous session. Very interesting what's happening with small caps at the moment. Um, they, they, they didn't join in the, the boost that we saw over the last few weeks in as much as the other, the, the more broad-based market, or the, the Dow and the Nasdaq did. Anyway, the Russell 2000 is falling almost 2%. Um, AMC shares are rallying in pre-market. Reports say the theatre chain is working on a financial deal to help it to avoid bankruptcy. And Walmart higher after a 6% rally on Tuesday. The reports say it may launch a service similar to Amazon Prime, which, of course, would be a great boom for Walmart and would certainly give Amazon something to think about. Air Asia Air shares are down 17%. EY, its auditors say there's significant doubt that Asia's budget regional carrier can survive Tony Fernandez Airline. They, they have qualified the results and talking of now material and significant doubts about Eurasia's survival. Beijing says Washington should stop peddling what it calls political lies after the FBI director Christopher Wray called China the greatest long-term threat to America's economic vitality. Stocks in Shanghai this session signaled rising optimism on China's own prospects. Michael Avery joins me now, head of financial market research at Asia-Pacific at Rabobank. Michael, good to have you, sir. Um, now, really, let, let's start with the easy stuff, in a sense. Why are a China stocks doing so well when the rest of the world is now rethinking so much of the coronavirus issues and problems? Well, let's break that down uh, in two ways, if I can. First of all, why are stocks everywhere doing so well when the coronavirus is still raging around the world. Tens of millions of people are without jobs and millions of those may never get their jobs back. Uh, and as we heard, company and co after company around the world is wondering whether it will survive this crisis. So it's a global question we need to ask rather than a, a Chinese specific one. But if we are looking just at China and asking why they've had a rally recently, the answer is very simple, because the government wanted there to be one. That's the be all and end all of it, basically. And so, as they have in the past, the government is pumping the market. Yes, uh, and you have to say that traditionally, that is something that we thought of as a characteristic of Chinese markets, that they would be easily pumped by the regulators like that to try and initially push the market up a little bit, get all the retail investors running after them to push it higher and higher and higher. And hopefully everybody notice that share prices are going up and not notice that the rest of the economy is moving sideways at best, if not getting worse. But of course, this, this is now a global technique when you have the US president tweeting on an almost daily basis how wonderfully 
the US stock market is doing and how badly it would do should his opponent win the election. So we've all become very Chinese in a way. Okay, but but the way in which, I mean, you can only do it for so long. And what has been clear, of course, you talk about the US, eventually people realize what's happening. The Fed comes in, we'll hear from the Fed vice chair in just a moment. In China, what happens when the smoke and mirrors are revealed for what it is and that China's trading partners are in deep trouble? Well, obviously not good things. Uh, If you pump a bubble anywhere to try and get people excited about the price of a particular asset, whether it's one company, the stock market as a whole, housing, for example, is another asset you can do the same thing too. And you push that price up and up and up and up and up. Well, at the end of that journey, you have a crash. Uh, of one form or another, or at the very least, you have a long period of stagnation where everyone's feeling pretty grumpy. That is going to happen everywhere that does it, and everyone globally is doing it at the same time. We'll put Hong Kong to one side because there are unique issues in that market. But if I look at Indonesia, if I look at Malaysia, if I look at many other um, ASEAN markets at the moment, they all have very high PE ratios particularly forward-looking PE. So that begs the question, if everybody is, you know, is this all predicated by the same fiction, which is the Chinese stock market at the moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about PE ratios as if fundamentals like that still matter. Um, In many cases, there's no longer any E, there's no longer any earnings, or there are fundamental questions over the long-run survivability of the company or even the whole industry given we don't understand what's happening with corona, but prices continue to levitate everywhere. So it is exactly the same fiction that you're seeing. And in fact, you know, we're all presuming as if fundamentals and facts matter. And in reality, perhaps none of these matter anymore at all. <laughs> yeah, how, how very old fashioned of us, Michael, to be worrying about things like <laughs> yeah. economic fundamentals and, uh, and what actually, and numbers and things like that. Oh, good to have you, sir. Very kind of you. Thank you. I appreciate your time this morning. Right. As, when My we come back after the break, the vice chair of the US Fed, it was a version of Mario Draghi's whatever it takes. In this case, we'll do, we'll do it. We'll do it well. And you'll hear what he says after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Julia's off. I'm at the helm for the moment. And we're off to the races. The markets are open and doing business. If we take, or at least the New Yorker market, I should say, we take a look at the Dow and the way they're trading. They're up, up about 60-odd points, a third of a percent. The Nasdaq is having the best of the session on an early start, over half a percent. New evidence that the U.S. effort to contain COVID-19 is faltering. Uh, I mean, who knows what's holding up this market? Is it new stimulus, the possibility after the White House says it wants a new emergency aid bill passed by early August? Airlines are on the downward trend. United says it's seeing decreased bookings, which is exactly what you don't want to see at the moment. Gold is pushing on ahead. $1,800 an ounce, highest level since 2011. Solid reasons why gold is higher if you look at the current uncertainties in the economy. Brooks Brothers, one of the grand old names of 
men's fashions, now women's fashions, of course, in the United States, is filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. One of the long line of victims of COVID-19 in the corporate world, particularly the retailing, Claire Sebastian is with me. Brooks Brothers, the button-down shirt, uh, famous from Brooks Brothers, the blue button-down shirt. Why have they gone bust? Richard, it's pretty much what we talk about with all of these retailers. It's the acceleration from the coronavirus pandemic added to the fact that they were struggling before this. Of course, Brooks Brothers is particularly exposed. They've had to close their stores, as many retailers have, uh, due to being declared non-essential, and they've seen a drop-off in foot traffic, of course. But they are also heavily exposed to something that was happening before this, and that is the, the sort of decline in the suit. People are not wearing pinstripes to work in the same way that they used to, present company, of course, uh, accepted. Uh, uh, they are now working from home, which means even less demand for things like this. And Brooks Brothers, you know, we saw this coming in a lot of ways. They've already warned that they might have to close their U.S. factories. They got a $20 million loan in May from a restructuring company. Uh, they are, as, a, as you know, Chapter 11 means they are going to continue trying to operate. They have 75 million uh, in financing to try to do that. But just another example, Richard, of the sort of Darwinism that we're seeing in retail accelerated by this pandemic. I think it was UBS that estimated 100,000 stores are going to have to close in the U.S. by 2025. Yet more evidence of that today. Uh, Sebastian, uh, thank you. Now we'll talk more about it. The number two official at the Fed has told me that the central bank will do more to help the U.S. economy as and when it becomes necessary. The vice chair, Richard Clarida, said there is no limit on asset purchases the central bank can make in support of the U.S. economy. He told me, though, because there are real fears of a double-dip recession, he said a double-dip recession was not the Fed's base case. After taking a huge hit in March and April, we did see evidence of the economy beginning to rebound in, in May and June, and that was very, very welcome. But you correctly point out we have seen and increasing cases in certain large uh, states. You know, we're not epidemiologists and we're following it closely, as we've said many times. Ultimately, the course of the economy is going to depend on the course of the virus, and we're following it very closely. But is there a risk? If we look at the number of cases that are going up and we look at the, the sort of lockdowns that are taking place, do you have the right tools in place for instance, if there were to be a double dip recession, is a double dip even on your horizon? Well, look, we look at a broad range of uh, scenarios. You know, it's not our base case. Uh, uh, but of course, we, we look at all relevant eventualities. What I can say is, as your earlier clip indicated, you know, we have a lot of accommodation in place. There's more that we can do. There's more that we will do uh, if we need to. And as you correctly point out, fiscal policy is an important part of uh, this and it looks like negotiations may well result in some additional fiscal support as well. The you say there are things you can do and there are things you you will do. Is that your version of the famous whatever it takes? Well, you know, Mario Draghi was a has sort of got the the trademark on that phrase, the copyright on that phrase. <laughs> what we will say and what we have said uh, is when it comes to the size of our balance sheet. Uh, we make those decisions. There's no limit to how much we can purchase in terms of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. You talked about the alphabet soup of programs. I think it's important for your viewers to know, Richard, these programs are meant to encourage and support the flow of credit to 
households and businesses uh, in the economy, uh, and those will remain in place as long as they're as long as they're needed. So there, there's more that we can do, and there's more that we will do if we have to do it. And on that alphabet soup. Um, some uh -huh. of them are more esoteric, uh, uh, esoteric, unless you're actually in the market. Municipal bonds one, for example, some of the corporate debt ones. Some of them haven't been used very much. Is, it, is the idea here, the old traditional Fed idea, you know, you, you, you don't, it's like a lender of last resort. You hope you're never needed, and the mere fact you're there with these plans deters anybody. Richard, I'm glad you asked that because I think that's actually quite important. I think announcing that these these are backstop facilities, so we really hope companies and individuals uh, don't necessarily need to access them, but they are backstops if needed. And I think there's a lot of evidence that just announcing that the facilities are in place are are essentially allowing private markets to function much better, and we think that's great. So these are backstop facilities, and and if they need to be used, they're there. But I think we do see the flow of credit. Uh, at good levels in many parts of the economy. So that's positive. On the, the stock market, well, barely four months on, the Nasdaq's at a record high, the Dow's flirting again. Just about every economist we have on Crest Means Business always says the same thing, which is, and, I, and perhaps you would have said it in a previous life, Vice Chair, <laughs> which is, well, of course, the market's high. The Fed is the is pumping so much liquidity. This is a Fed market. Um, now, do you, it's not your responsibility to prop up the stock market, but that is the right. effect of what's happening. Well, I think, look, uh, our focus is now and always has been on putting in place policies that help us to achieve our the goals that Congress has assigned to it, which is full employment uh, and price stability. Obviously, our policies work through financial markets. And our focus is not on any one market. It's really on a broader question. Uh, can companies get access to funding, to financing so that they can stay open? We're providing a bridge to companies. We think that's important. And obviously, a lot of factors contribute to market prices. And so I'm not going to go into to that. But our focus is not really on any particular market. It's on getting the economy back to full employment and price stability as soon as possible. Richard Clarida talking to me yesterday. Now, in a moment, financial disruptors. A talk to the South Korean fintech that has completely changed the landscape. I speak to the CEO of TOS on how the pandemic has changed the landscape and what they are doing and to respond in just a moment. Israel's director of public health has resigned as the number of confirmed cases of coronavirus seems to be out of control in Israel. The director says that his warnings about an early reopening were ignored and the results are now following. CNN's Oren Lieberman reports from Jerusalem. If Israel's first wave of COVID-19 was a success story, its second wave appears on pace for a very different ending. I'm still taking care of myself and washing my hands and not getting close to people so much. I hope it will be fine soon. 
As coronavirus cases surge across the country, the government has reimposed closures of public halls, pubs, gyms, pools, and more. With unemployment already more than 20%, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to avoid another complete lockdown. Today there are around 90 severe cases and the number is doubling every four days. If we do not act now, there will be hundreds, perhaps thousands of severe cases in the coming weeks which will paralyze our systems. When the country reopened in early May, Israel looked like an international coronavirus success story. Low mortality rate, few new infections, available hospital space, and Netanyahu was riding that first wave to high approval ratings. Then came the second wave. Daily infections have increased 50-fold. 20 new cases a day are now 1,000 new cases. Active infections hit record highs. And Netanyahu's approval rating on the handling of COVID-19 has plummeted. 74% in May, to 46% now, according to recent polling. The national unity government, formed specifically to deal with coronavirus, appears more concerned with political squabbles. This government is crap, and the prime minister is full of crap. 60% of Israelis fear for their financial future. The worry is that bad can still become worse. My heart goes out. I don't know how people are maintaining. People raising families, people who have lost their businesses. It's you know, the, the, the last shoe hasn't yet dropped, unfortunately, so it, it's, it's concerning. On Tuesday, the top public health official at the Ministry of Health resigned, saying her professional opinion was no longer accepted, warning that the country is approaching a dangerous place. To my regret, for a number of weeks, the handling of the outbreak has lost direction, she wrote in her resignation. Despite systemic and regular warnings in the various systems and in the discussions in different forums, we watch with frustration as the hourglass of opportunities runs low. In late April, Netanyahu said Israel had been successful in its mission to combat coronavirus as he began easing restrictions and opening the economy. But the mission isn't over yet. Orrin Lieberman, CNN, Jerusalem. We are underway. The markets are trading. The Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 they're all, they were at the start all showing small gains and those gains are just basically extending marginally. So we're looking in for a good day. Well, at least that's what it is. We're only 20 minutes in. Who knows where we'll end. Uh, it's first move with Richard Question for Julia. The pandemic is clearly changing the way we pay for things. Look no further than South Korea, where the company TOS is hoping to create new markets and take advantage of what's been going on. TOS is a financial services platform with a valuation of nearly $2.5 billion. And among its investors is PayPal. It turned a profit in April and is expanding into a fully-fledged bank, South Korea's third digital-only bank. Lately, TOS has had one or two security concerns that we will talk about, and particularly about having to compensate customers who've fallen victim to fraud. S.G. Lee is the CEO of Viva Republica, which created TOS. S.G. Lee joins me now via Skype from Seoul. It is good to see you. Hopefully, you can, you can hear me. And when I look at the growth of fintech and payment methods and the way in which companies like yours have been able to find opportunities in this pandemic. Where do you see them? 
So I think the uh, people are more, more and more looking forward to their uh, find a way to solve their financial needs more on mobile, less than and less footprints to the retail offline retail. Uh, people are trying to do their uh, fulfill their financial needs uh, in internet when it's most mostly mobile rather than just go to the offline branch. That ninety percent of cases, all the transaction has been uh, done by the offline branch so far. But starting this year, because of this uh, COVID situation, changes everything. Why do you want to become a fully fledged bank? What's the advantage to having a banking license rather than just being a payments mechanism? Right. So TOS is we are the first one who operate the world the first the super financial super app that enabling every financial needs for every financial facet. So uh, from the money transfer, but for the loans, we, we offer the full suits of the consumer finance that solve any financial needs in retail. Right. And as we doing this, right. we began to find that uh, uh, rather than uh, let the bank uh, offer the best product of the loans, why don't we just go double down and provide the loans from ourselves so that we can dramatically lower the interest rates that are compared to that of uh, the loans that are of the traditional bank. You're aware, of course, that you've had one or two issues concerning fraud within the payment mechanism, uh, which you've had to compensate. I guess what I need to understand from you is new fintech loves the, the open boundaries, the possibilities, the opportunities. But you also have to take on board the responsibilities of bank ratios, tier capital, dealing with fraudulent claims. Do you do you accept that there's two sides to new fintech? I think that in general, uh, every entrepreneur in the fintech industry believes that there is a way we can achieve secure, but also very convenient way to, to any transactions. Uh, it's about the trust and fintech industry, uh, uh, including TAS, uh, is valuing uh, uh, reliability. Uh, reliability is a big issue, so we are really focusing on the security, so 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 that we can just make sure that everyone will really trust uh, TAS as a, their main platform of the finance and uh, believing TAS as a as just really safe as a uh, as a as a cash. Uh, we're trying to do very in advance a uh, full right. uh, comprehensive uh, compensation policy. Uh, so we already launched uh, the new policy enabling uh, to uh, 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 right. suspend all the accounts if the user claims uh, fraudulent uh, transactions and uh, refund all the lost first, even in its investigation process. I think the uh, 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 well, for TAS, it wasn't really a security issue. It was a fraudulent payment scam by the identity thief. But we seem to be having a couple of difficulties hearing SG Lee joining me from Seoul in South Korea. Thank you, sir. President Trump meets the Mexican president today. Andres Manuel Lopez Orobado left Mexico City on a commercial flight. He did manage to snag an, economy, uh, uh, an emergency exit row seat. I wonder whether he paid extra for that. Anyway, he flew commercial after he tested negative for coronavirus. His visit to Washington is to celebrate the new USMCA. Matt Rivers is in Mexico City, uh, joins me now. 
So they, he's going to the U.S. economy, an emergency seat, to to meet President Trump. But uh, but Justin Trudeau of Canada is not going. So square that circle. Yeah, I mean, Richard, Justin Trudeau isn't going because, you know, there's a really bad pandemic in the United States right now. There's a bad pandemic in Mexico. And Trudeau said, look, maybe now is not the best time to be having this meeting. Uh, but you have two leaders and President Trump and President Lopez Obrador uh, who have a lot of common ground when it comes to their approach to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, they would rather talk about the economic reopening uh, than the fact that, for example, for in the U.S., you've got cases surging here in Mexico. Cases and deaths have tripled roughly since June 1st. Uh, but clearly these are two right. men who want to talk about something other than the coronavirus. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at the timing of this meeting, neither leader is getting good marks when it comes to public polling in their respective countries on their respective handlings of uh, this outbreak. And so maybe they're looking at this meeting, both of them, uh, as a distraction, if only to get the media to talk about something else uh, for a little while. But, you know, here in Mexico, Richard, there's also been a lot of criticism of Lopez Obrador going to Washington, D.C., given the demonizing rhetoric that you hear from President Trump about immigrants. A lot of them are Mexicans, uh, but clearly Lopez Obrador prioritizing the economy because the USMCA is crucial for uh, Mexico's economy down here, Richard. Matt Rivers, who's there, we'll follow that story as it goes on. That is First Move. I'm Richard Quest. I'll see you on Quest Means Business in a few hours from now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.